We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And I mentioned that there's two things that we have to take apart. And the truth is each one deserves its own share. So we're going to do it that way. One of them is, where do all the customs of mourning come from? After we studied the story of Rabbi Kiva and his students and saw that in none of the versions of the story, and you'll see that next week when we look at the versions, is there any mention of a practice of anything as a result of this tragedy? And you would think that the Gemara, which, by the way, if you remember in the story, there were layer, later layers that were added on when uh, Amorai Bavel mentioned that they died a terrible death. And there was a layer on that it was between Pesach and Shavuot. And then Rav Nachman said they died of croup. So there, the Gemara is not shy about adding later layers of information. And why didn't the Gemara add in that as a result of that, we don't have weddings, whatever it might be during this period. So the search goes on. Now, we already saw uh, this source um, on uh, last week, the Gerard of Shurigon, where, um, and we're going to reference this next week again, where he mentioned that the students were not, didn't die of a disease. Evidently, he didn't have this tradition of Rav Nachman, but that they were massacred, that there was a shmad against them. And this is what gives rise to the idea that they may have been part of um, Bar Kokhba's uh, war- warriors. And that's where the numbers came from. And that's the Rabbi Akiva connection, because Rabbi Akiva, of course, was the one who supported Bar Kokhba. All right. And historians generally like to to associate the story with that. And it may be accurate. Well, next week, we're going to see more about that. But I want to focus more on the practices of mourning during this period, which for many people are coming to an end tomorrow uh, with uh, being like Bomer coming up. But let's see where it comes from. So we saw uh, in the 10th century, and the very first source that we saw, an absolute attribution of the mourning to the or association to the death of Rabbi Kiva's students. And then we asked the questions that we asked. But not everybody is so sanguine about it. So we moved to the 13th century. And here we see in source two, a book called Shibole Aleket. Uh, Shibole Aleket was uh, composed by Ravzidkia uh, Minha'anavim in Italy in the 13th century. And he was uh, he's well situated um, to compose this because it includes both Minhagim from Ashkenaz to the north and also Minhagim from Spain to the west. And so we see it's one of the earliest collections. It's really like a, an international collection of practices. And he mentions a practice that actually is mentioned earlier, but he mentions it. And I'm only bringing this up because the next three words are key to this whole experience. He says, women have a custom not to do malacha during Sfirat Omer in the evening, after sunset. And then he says, yesh tolin hata'am. Some people attribute the reason. In other words, this is exactly what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a practice that is not come with its own reason. Meaning, we don't have a practice that explains itself or that in its original manifestation comes with an explanation. So now we're looking for a reason. So what's the reason that women don't do malacha at night? And just to quickly summarize what he says, he says that because the students of Rabbi Akiva died, they always died right at the end of the day. All right, that's still not enough. And then he quotes from a chacham from Spire. Now he's in Italy, he's quoting from Spire, of course, in Germany. 
And he says that there is a tradition that the women would always be the ones to accompany a, uh, a beer out to burial, uh, a body out to burial. Uh, and there's a midrashic reason for that. That, of course, is not our practice. And therefore, the women were the ones who would take the bodies of the, or they lead the procession of the bodies of the students of Rabbi Kiva. So this is now building a whole lot onto the story that's not in the story itself. And so our women are taking pride. Now watch what he says. Our women are taking pride in like their ancestresses' great behavior of burying the dead. And so we're not doing malacha tonight. That's one approach to that. All right. And then there is another approach that we're going to see later on uh, to that whole main hog that comes from a very different direction. But in the meantime, remember how we started off with noting that Rabbi Yitzhak Ibn Gayat said, he said it's a minag throughout all of the Jewish communities not to get married between Pesach and Shavuot. But we'll see that both those statements are not exact. Why? Because here he says, There are some places where they have a custom, and this is one of the first places we hear about this, not to get a haircut. For after Pesach, Ad Lagla Omer. And this is also one of the first places that we hear about Lagba Omer. And he doesn't give a reason why Lagba Omer is special. I give a share on that a couple of years ago. I think last year, maybe. Some places have a custom not to get married between Pesach and Shavuot. Some places. Notice. Some places. And this is 300 years later. Now, what's his explanation for this? And of course, you got to explain it. Anytime you see a custom that's strange. Anytime that you see an opportunity for normal life or an opportunity to do a mitzvah and the custom is to avoid it, you got to ask the question, wow, I'll give you a great example. There is a custom, we talked about this years ago, there is a custom in many communities, it still exists in some communities, but it was widespread uh, really up until the middle of the 20th century, uh, not to study Torah on December 24th at night. And the first thing you got to do is, where did that come from? And there are all sorts of theories proposed because the idea of having a custom not to study Torah is just so bizarre, we got to find a reason. We've talked in the past about the famous fast of the ninth of Tevet that the Shohanar says, we don't know why it is. So therefore, everybody, of course, tries to figure out why there is such a fast. Well, the same thing here, there's a minig not to get married in some communities, with the Mesach and Shavuot, we got to figure out why. Now, you would expect right here, you would say, because Rabbi Kiva's students died. And again, remember, we had several problems with that statement, part of which is, why are we mourning for them? And why only marriage? How come there's no statement about uh, laundry or about other things? He gives a different explanation. He says, Why don't we get married now? Because these are days of bad luck. How do I know they're days of bad luck? Rabbi Kiva's students died. In other words, he, he says, instead of it being, or Bakiva students died, so we're mourning, we're sad, so we're going to avoid weddings. Instead, we're saying, I see that these are days of bad luck, and therefore, I don't want to have a wedding then, because, how do I know they're bad luck? Because Bakiva students died. Now, um, what, what's this, what is all of this about? So it's important to note that from the times of Chazal, all the way till today, there have been major segments of the Jewish population that maintained that the, I, the alignment of the stars 
affects what happens to you on a particular day. The Rambam, of course, was scandalized by that, thought it was a terrible thing. But many Rishonim, I believe it's safe to say most Rishonim, actually did maintain that. And as a result of that, you wanted to pick the right day to do something and make sure that it happened on a day when everything was aligned properly, especially something as critical as getting married. And that's why the, the traditional blessing, which, by the way, is not found in Chazal or in the Rishonim anywhere, is Mazal Tov. What does Mazal Tov mean? It means good constellation. And it is a wish that this event, which is going to set the tone of the rest of your life, should happen fortuitously under the guidance of the stars. He says, therefore, he said, some people don't get married now because it's days of bad luck. Why is it days of bad How do I know it's days of bad luck? There was a plague killed Rabbi Kiva's students. Right? And then he says, Now, by the way, this doesn't work with what he just said. So there's some places where they have a custom to get married till Rosh Chodesh E.R. After Rosh Chodesh, they stop marrying, meaning they don't have weddings anymore. That, by the way, is the custom of Ashkenaz and Chutzlaretz. And therefore, there are often, I think every year, there are weddings the week after Pesach. Uh, here in L.A., certainly there are weddings the week after Pesach. Uh, and I remember an interesting question coming up. If somebody practices mourning till Lagba Omer and they're invited to a wedding right after Pesach, can they go and answer? Is Yes, go and dance and elate the bride and groom. Okay. Now, before going to the next piece, uh, I want to back it up by showing you something right here. The um, the last two psukim of Sefer Yeshayahu, um, Right now, what is the context of this? So the next pasuk, which is the last pasuk, which is so upsetting that when we read this publicly, i.e., the haftarav Shabbat Rosh Chodesh, we go back and read the penultimate pasuk again to end on a nice note. The last note clearly is talking about death and about uh, punishment in the future, etc. And so this pasuk, got interpreted in rabbinic times to be a reference not to some messianic vision, but a personal destiny, shall we say, after you die. And here we go. The Mishnah records a whole bunch of things. The Mishnah in Ediot mentions a whole bunch of things that Rabbi Akiva said, including uh, five things that he said lasted 12 months. And you can see the list here. I'm only concerned with number five for us which is Mishpat Rishayim Begehinom. Now, let me ask you a question. How long do you say Kaddish for, for a parent, for anybody, really? How long do you say Kaddish for? 11 months. 11 months. We say Kaddish for 11 months. Why don't we say Kaddish for a week or a month or two months or 12 years? It's all based on this. Because the tradition that Rishayim, the wicked, are punished in Gehenim for 12 months, and the idea is that every time you're saying Kaddish, you're doing a little bit to alleviate their punishment. I don't know how that works. I don't know. But that's the, the notion. So as a result of that, you never want to maintain that your parents are Rishayim. And so the Minhag, which became a very strong Minhag, and something that's observed with great punctiliousness, is to stop after exactly 11 months. Not one, not one Kaddish later. I even had a, a, a friend of mine who had overlapping years. His father died, and about seven months later, his mother died. And so he was saying Kaddish for a while, one Kaddish, but for both of them. And when he got to the end of the 11 months for his father, he 
he actually took a day off of Kaddish, even though he's still saying Kaddish for his mother, because he didn't want to give the impression that he thought his father was a Rasha, and exactly at 11 months he stopped. And that's the practice. However, Rabbi Yochum Ben-Nuri Omer, Mina Pesach Aratzeret. Rabbi Yochum Ben-Nuri says, the Rishayim are punished from Pesach to Shavuot. And they both have their parts of the Pasuk, as you can see, that they get it from. Now, how to understand what Rabbi Yochum Ben-Nuri is saying is a little bit difficult. Does he mean that if you die on Hanukkah, then you wait around in some Catholic limbo until Pesach, and then you're dragged out to punishment for seven weeks? It seems like he means that the way that it's taken. I, I would have said it means seven weeks, like Pesach to Shavuot. But no, it seems that they're interpreting it. Actually, the dates of Pesach to Shavuot are when you when the Rishayim were punished. Kind of strange. Why pick that period? But that's what he says. So now back to here. The Achirav Binyamin. So the Shavuot, like is quoting, he quotes his brother all the time. Um, Natre Rachmanov, etc. That God should protect him. Peresh Atam. Why don't we have weddings then? He quotes another source parallel to ours. He says, you know why we don't have weddings now? We don't have weddings now because this is the time that the Rishonim were being punished in Gehenna. Now, by the way, this is curious on a whole lot of levels. First of all, because why do we care? The Rishonim are getting punished in heaven. Why in Gehenna? Why can't we have weddings? Why? Since when? Second of all, we actually favor the other opinion that's 12 months. That's why we say Kaddish for 11. So you're going to say you can never have weddings because Rishayim are always being punished. It's a very strange notion. What's happened here? <clears throat> it's, it's, it's simply the following. We have a custom that we see that's been going on for a while. We don't know where it started. And we see that this custom is specifically between Pesach and Shavuot to avoid weddings. And then other customs are springing up to avoid other things. And then this Lag Baomer thing, Rosh Chodesh Iyar comes in, and I'll explain where Rosh Chodesh Iyar comes from. And we're trying to figure it out. So the first thing we do is to look into our history, look into our literature for something between Pesach and Shavuot. Well, you can't say we don't have weddings because you're counting. That, that doesn't that make any sense. So we have to look for something that's troubling or upsetting. So the most obvious thing to find is, well, according to one story, there was a plague that killed a lot of students with Mesach and Shavuot. That must be it. He, he turns around and says, well, it could be that, but turn it around is that plague indicates that these are days of bad luck. This, his brother, Rabbi Yomim, says, I got a whole different thing. We got another Pesach till Shavuot, which is Rabbi Yochum Minuri's opinion about the Rishayim being punished. This, of course, is all very difficult. It's all very difficult, but you, you see how frustrating it is for the Chachamim we're looking at and they're grasping to try to find some sort of a connection. <clears throat> now we go back to the original statement we had on top of this paragraph that women don't do malacha in evenings. And why, remember we said earlier it was like a badge of honor. Our women, were the, our ancestresses were the ones who led the funeral cortege and therefore we're asking in their glory, as it were, and honoring their, their, their commitment by not doing malacha. He has a whole different take. What is the grain that the Omer is? It's barley. That's the whole point. You bring the first barley offering. Is there any other offering that's, that comes from barley? There's only one other offering that comes from barley. Everything else is wheat. What's that? 
Okay, so we'll see. Mishiroa siritaifa. It's one tenth of an efa of uh, you know about three kilograms of 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 barley. minchat sota. The only other thing that was brought from barley was the sota offering when she's about to undergo her her uh, her trial by water, if you will. That's why our women during Sfirat Omer don't do Malachat at night. It has nothing to do with Rebekiva's students or bearing or anything. Because it's like a badge of glory, again a badge of glory. You know, it's the idea of taking the evening off from work for seven weeks in a row, not doing any cooking or, or sewing or whatever it is they would do. Um, uh, because it's a badge of glory, but not a badge of glory of bearing, but rather of something else. But watch how he flips it. It's also a reminder to make sure they stay in line and they don't think about straying from their husbands. In other words, we just were counting from the Omer, which was a barley offering. So we're going to take this time off to also remind us, like limit ourselves, what we do to remind us, uh-oh, the barley offering, uh-oh, sota, I better not do that. And then he brings an example of that from the the kior that was made from the mirrors that the women, remember, in the, the, the women used in Mitzrayim. All right. Now, what we have here is three different customs. A custom of not marrying, a custom that we saw about haircuts, and a custom about not doing malacha at night. And for the not marrying, and evidently haircuts goes along with it, maybe. And for the not doing malacha, we have in one composition at least two different suggestions for each one of them of where it comes from, because we have no idea where it comes from. So I want to show you two other Provencal chachamim here in source four and five. Quickly, I'm going to summarize what they say because we're going to keep going. And then I'm going to bring it back to source three, which is also Provence, uh, to have a whole different take on the period. It comes from a very different place. And then I'll make yet a, a last suggestion. All right. And again, next week, we're going to devote it to looking back at the Rabbi Kiva student story and seeing all the different versions of the story and how that came together. Okay. The Orchot Chayim is Rabbi Aaron Akoin Milunel. 14th century in Provence, late 13th. And he said, and he, he chastises those people who stopped the morning at Lag Bomer. And he says, they don't understand. You know what Lag Bomer really is? This was his claim. He says, we had a tradition that the students only died for 33 days. And then he makes a whole calculation of saying, well, you've got this many days of Pesach and you've got, um, and you've got, uh, in other words, days in which we don't mourn. So these days of Pesach and these Shabbatot, and Rosh Chodesh, um, and the three days of Rosh Chodesh, so that comes out to, to 16 days, subtract 16 from 49, and you end up with uh, 33. And it says, therefore, they made the mistake of thinking that Lag Omer was the date, but really what it was, was that um, that there's only 33 days of um, of uh, mourning, but not the 33rd day. So that was their error. Now, the problem is the math doesn't work for a simple reason. If you're going to knock off the, he says, eight days of Pesach, which is not true because Sphere starts on the second day. So even a chutz starts is only seven of them. And you count, and he knocks off seven Shabbatot, but one of those Shabbatot is on Pesach. 
So the math is a little bit of a cheat. But then at the end, this is the interesting thing for us. He says, Some people during this period will not let do bloodletting, which was, of course, a very common practice of, of, of medical uh, treatment. They wouldn't go to the doctor. These are days that are bad luck. So in other words, because they're days of bad luck, I'm not going to do anything that could get that, that could endanger me. Rabbeinu Yerucham, also in Provence, who has a very famous shita about Sfirat Omer, or Tusfirot, also mentions this, but he has a whole different take on the on the um, on the not, not having weddings. He says that because the korban haomer is made of barley and barley was used for the sota, therefore we don't have weddings now. Again, it's hard to piece this all together, but what I really want to show you is everybody's grasping to figure out where this custom came from. And again, it's a, it's, it, it becomes a very difficult stretch. I want to take you to the third source here. Uh, something I remember hearing from the Rav and Shear, um, but not with the nuance that I'm adding to it. I'm, I'm not sure that he would agree with this, but I, but uh, it, this is where I learned this Balamar. The Balamar, Zrachi Alevi, also in Provence, but 12th century Provence, um, wrote a commentary on the Rift. Now, of course, everybody, they named, they named their books with brilliant names. So since his name was Zrachia, and the Zrach means to shine, therefore he called his book Sefer Hamaor, right? The, the light. And he wrote Hamaor Hagadol and Hamaor Hakatan, the big light and the small light, based on Breshit, the fourth day of the sun and the moon, the big light and the small light. So the Maor Hagadol was on on uh, Nashim and Ezekin, and Moed, and Brachot, and Hulin, and uh, were Amaor HaKatan. And you'll find it as a commentary on the riff. So it's in the back of a uh, standard volume of Shas. And at the end, he asks the question, how come we don't say a Shechianu on Sfirat Omer? I don't mean during. I'm not asking about that. He's asking, why don't we say a Shechianu when we first say Sfirat Omer? Because it's a mitzvah that comes from time to time, like others. And he says, some people ask the question, and he says, um, his, he says, the reason, I think, is, he says, Shechianu is a bracha of rejoicing. He says, Shechianu brings no, Shechianu Omer brings no rejoicing with it. Why? Or ogmat nafshenu. Every time we count Sphero, we are brokenhearted. Why? L'churban beit ma'avayenu. Because of the destruction of Beit Hamikdash, what does he mean by that? So I want you to think about it. In a few hours, you're going to count, and tonight's 32. I could say that safely; it's quite early, right? Tonight's 32. What are you counting? 32 what? You're counting 32 days. 32 days from what? What happened 32 days ago? A korban haomer was offered up in the Beit Hamikdash. Oh no, it wasn't. Why not? Because the Romans destroyed it and it hasn't been rebuilt. Which means that if you're paying attention to what you're doing, he's saying every time you count, you should be brokenhearted. How can you say shachianu? And so he seems to at least suggest that the entire period is a period of sadness, not because of events that took place afterwards during this period but rather because built in to Sfirat Omer after the Churban is sadness. And Horaya, what's the line that we say after counting? Everybody says it, no matter what community you're in, 
We all say this line. What's the line we say after counting every night? God should restore the Avodah We don't do that after we shake Lulav, which is also connected to the Mikdash. Right? Okay, fine, because it's Sukkot, we're rejoicing. But we don't do that after other mitzvot. But we do that after this. We also do it after tefillah, and there's another reason for that. Yes. Just a second. So the idea is that Sfirat Omer has built into it a connection to the Beit HaMikdash, which, of course, we're broken hearted because we don't have. One last thing, and then, Jason, I'll, 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 I'll let you ask. You notice that already in the Shibole Alek, and he mentioned, and it's a common custom we're familiar with, that in some communities, they start the morning on Rosh Chodesh Iyar. By the way, you'll notice that the sense of mourning has intensified over the centuries. By the way, in our generation, it's lessened. I've talked to caterers who told me until last year with COVID that whereas in most years, they actually went on vacation during Sphere because they had no events and they tooled up for Lagma Omer. Now there's dinners and all sorts of things they have and people find excuses of ways to justify it. I'm talking about the ultra-Orthodox community, every community. There's all sorts of events and stuff going on during Sphira. It's almost like it's, it's dwindling. But the period did become more intensified over the years, and here's the reason why. And this is why the Rosh Chodesh Iyar. Um, the, starting in 1096, there was a wave of what ended up being 13 different crusades uh, marching across Europe. Most of them weren't that successful. We didn't hear about them, but 1096 was the first one. And of course, in 1096, they marched through the Rhine Valley and they massacred in Speyer and Wurms and Mainz in the German communities. And we have keynote about it. And Avarachamim was written as a result. And Yizko was instituted as a result. Lots of things were generated in the world of Ashkenaz. And, the, and every time there was a crusade, the crusades always would start right around Rosh Chodesh Iyar. And they would last till after Shavuot. So two things happened. First of all, in those communities, the sense of mourning intensified. And that they, since there was a custom that had already pre, uh, already become prevalent to only mourn for 33 days, they shifted it to Rosh Chodesh Iyar until Shavuot. So that's where that came from. So Jason, do you have a question? Then I'm going to show you one other possible suggestion about where this came from. Go okay. ahead. What I was going to say is two things. First of all, where does shaving come from or not shaving? And two is what was fear before the Chorban then? Because right. that's okay, image. good. Good. So I'm okay. I'm going to address the first one right now, the second one after this. I'm, I'm trying to stick to, the, to the, the clock. Yeah, that's okay. So shaving, as you see, only shows up much later. It shows up here in the 13th century. As some people have a custom uh, to do it, it shows up. Again, chiefly in Provence, uh, and it spreads. I believe that it spread was part of again uh, an embrace of more sense of a sense of mourning as a result of the events that took place in Europe during that period. Um, again, the go- the early authorities mentioned the only thing they mentioned is marriage. The only thing they mentioned is marriage. Now it's important to note, and Trachtenberg no- notes this, and Silverman notes this, and a couple others who have done research on the topic note that in Rome, nobody got married in May. And May was considered to be a time of very bad luck for marriages. So, you know, do what you want with that. I'm not ready to say that we wholesale adopted a whole month off of marriages because of some Roman pagan idea, and now we got to find explanations. But I'd, I'd rather say I don't know than to say that, but I don't know. But I want to make another suggestion, which will also 
Jason, touch in with what you just asked. Um, again, where does the search start? The search, search starts by saying, well, what do we see in our history that happened between Pesach and Shavuot that could possibly be a cause for this avoiding weddings? And I found something. Uh, what you're looking at is three psukim, eight, nine, and ten. Three psukim from Megillat Esther. Right? And in Megillat Esther, when did Haman's decree get written and promulgated? So we have the date. The date is the 13th of Nisan. When did Mordechai's decree that the Jews could defend themselves get promulgated? We have the date, 23rd of Sivan. What happened in between those two things? Esther fasted for three days, and on the third day she came to the king, and that night there was a banquet, and that night the king couldn't sleep, and the next day Mordechai was led on the horse, and that night was the second banquet, and by the end of that night Haman was swinging in the wind. Four consecutive days, the first three are fasting on that third day, and then on the fourth day, everything's over. When were those four days? They're consecutive days, so when were those four days? So there's a famous Midrash, a Midrash Midrashic tradition, that those four days were the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th of Nisan. Because the documents are written on the 13th of Nisan. And so the notion is that immediately Mordechai was in the street mourning, immediately Esther sent clothes, immediately Mordechai told her what to do, immediately da-da-da-da. And so the fasting started on the 13th and the 14th, then 15th, which is Yontif, Pesach, and they didn't have Pesach that year, they were fasting. And the 15th at night, the Hainu, beginning of second night of Yontif, um, which they probably didn't practice in the Persia, but beginning of the of, of Cholamoid, they had the first banquet, that night, first day of Cholamoid, Mordechai is marched, and then the next night is the banquet, and Haman's dead. That's the notion. There's two problems with that in the text. Problem number one is that we know that Mordechai and Esther wrote a document to the Jews saying they could defend themselves. Actually, the whole, the whole empire saying the Jews could defend themselves. And they sent the document on the 23rd of Sivan. What were they doing for two months? Why were they sitting around for two months doing nothing while the Jews' fate is hanging in the balance? Why didn't they write the document earlier? What's going on? The second thing is, and you could say there's politicking and this and that, although it took him on no time to get his document written, but there's a second problem. The text tells us that after the the, the decree was publicized, Jews throughout the empire were mourning. And only afterwards do we hear that Mordechai is in the streets and Esther calls the town, and that's when the four days start. How long does it take to get a message from Shushan to Egypt? We know there were Jews in Egypt. At least two weeks. I know it takes at least two weeks because we have a second day Yontif, and Yontif is two weeks after Rosh Chodesh. So it takes at least two weeks to get the message out there. So that means that if Jews are mourning out there, that means nothing's happened yet. The Esther Mordechai thing hasn't happened yet for several weeks. So what I'm going to suggest is that this description in in Source 9, that the Jews are mourning and fasting, wearing sackcloth and all of that throughout the empire, lasted for a good number of weeks. And those weeks are exactly between Pesach and Shavuot. And it was only at the end of that period that the three days of fasting and the banquet, etc., and then the death of Haman, and then a few days later they wrote the decree. What that would mean then, and I'm just throwing it out suggestion, what that would mean then is 
that the, this particular period had an ancient tradition of mourning. Now, we weren't going to be fasting and wearing sackcloth and all of that, but it's possible, I'm just throwing out a possibility, that at least in some communities, they maintained a tradition that this is a period where we abstain from something, because historically, this is a period where our lives were in the balance. And again, no record of it. And then finally in the you know 10th century, we're looking around saying we have this custom. Let's see if we can figure out what it is. And then we see all the different suggestions that are made here. Just a, a hypothesis. I can't back it up. But something that I thought was interesting, because again, everybody who tries to solve this starts by saying, what happened between Pesach and Shavuot in history? So we have the death of Rabbi Kiva's students that maybe we'll see about that maybe happened then. We have the Rishayim suffering in Gehinom, and we have the Omer itself and the barley and the whole Sota connection. That's it. So I'm suggesting there's a fourth place to look, which is here in Megillah Esther. 